0: Hello and welcome to Zero Net 50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and with me is Joel Stronberg. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. All right. So uh, on this podcast, we regularly look at federal policies and talk about global positioning of those issues. But today, you have some insights from the state and city level that bring some perspective to federal activity. Is that right?
1: I do. Um, You know, every week I kind of go through and see if I can find uh, emerging trends, and one of them, uh, which is coming out very clearly, is has to do with uh, the oil and gas industry. Interestingly enough, um, and it it got prompted uh, the, the the hot button for it last week were uh, two executive orders that Trump signed, um, both having to do basically with uh, permits for uh, pipelines and uh, for drilling and, uh, and fossil fuel projects. Um, the first order. Uh, is a response to the Keystone Pipeline, which Trump has supported even as a candidate. Um, he's been frustrated because every effort that the administration has made to expedite the permitting process um, gets stopped either in the courts or because, uh, in this courts either by uh, environmentalists or state governments. Um, and this, these two executive orders are going to be no exception. Um, in the one order, he uh, is setting up a system which is supposed to arrive at a conclusion much faster than is going on now. The second one, however, is probably more, um, has more of an impact than, um, than the first one does. And that one indicates that the president has the right um, to actually sign off on a permit uh, for uh, pipelines, especially those that cross international boundaries which is the case in, in the Keystone um, situation. Right. And what it does is it not only um, cuts the states out of the process, basically, it actually cuts federal agencies out of the process. Um, right. In this case, the agency would be uh, the State Department because the pipeline crossed international boundaries. Mm-hmm. And states and local governments are are um, understandably pushing back on that. I mean, he this is part, I think, of his overall effort to... F- have the federal government uh, be the supreme decision maker in cases, uh, in, not only in these cases, but obviously in the CAFE standard as well. I mean, This is an administration that is pretty much hell-bent on um, taking away California's ability to establish a standard more strident um, than the federal standard. This also kind of plays into the state and city um, governments being worried about The problem of of, um, uh, post-disaster assistance. Um, The Mm -hmm. bills um, are currently every bill is currently jammed up at the moment, uh, including those for the Texas, for Texas and last um, uh, summer's uh, and fall's problems, and also includes on the Puerto Rican. And what what states and cities are seeing is that um, this is a this is an administration that is more attentive to. Trump's policies, then um, they may be to some of the states. Now, that kind of traverses both sides of, of, the, uh, of, of the political aisle. Um, but, for example, in the offshore drilling cases, you're seeing Republicans um, like Rubio and um, Senator, the newly elected Senator Scott um, in Florida, who, as governor, basically paid no attention to this stuff, is now um, sponsoring legislation that would, in fact, prohibit the Interior Department from uh, allowing or approving uh, drilling offshore. They're worried about the, the effect on tourism. Uh, I think it also reflects a lack of confidence in the uh, Trump administration, which is somewhat understandable. Um, on that side, you get on the coast, on the east and west coast, you get um, a lot of bipartisan uh, support for, for cutting off the drilling. Um, or at least limiting the the areas that they can do it also includes the Arctic um, whereas in the Gulf Coast which you get are um, influential members like Garrett Graves who's the uh, co-chair of the House Select Committee indicating that the problem this is a problem that isn't really a problem and the reason obviously is because so much of Louisiana's uh, economy depends upon uh, the the oil and gas industry both onshore and off. Um, I think that this will be a trend going forward and a real possibility where uh, Republicans and Democrats are going to end up having to work together on this. Um, Should there ever be an infrastructure bill, uh, which is somewhat doubtful at this point, um, these kinds of interests, I think, will be uh, carried into that kind of legislation as well. Um, I think that any opportunity for uh, Republicans and Democrats to work together is probably uh, a good thing, no matter what the topic is. Um, mm-hmm. It's you know, bipartisanship is, is is like anything else; it benefits from practice, and we haven't had a lot of that recently.
0: Right, absolutely. Well, it is tax day after all. We we could talk a little bit about taxes, maybe not the ones that hurt as much, but you. Right, know... thank you for reminding <laughs> me of that. <laughs> there is some uh, tax policy. Uh, that matters to us at this point, right?
1: Yes. Um, in fact, there's already a uh, bill has been put in um, by uh, <clears throat> Senator uh, Stabenow um, from Michigan, uh, Gary Peters from Michigan, uh, also a Senator, and Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, along with Susan Collins. And what it would do is it, it extends, it expands the uh, uh, tax credit for electric vehicles. Um, this ends up being a kind of interesting issue um, in part because it's the, the Trump administration, and Trump in particular, um, believes that electric vehicles are, are, a, um, are a passing fancy, if you will. Mm, um, yeah. he's, uh, Trump has announced that this isn't something that uh, he thinks is ever going to make it in the marketplace, whereas the auto industry, which um, he is, a, is the industry that he should be um, considering in all of this, has an entirely opposite view of what's going on. Um, and not only on the tax issues, but clearly on the CAFE standards. Um, I've spoken before, we've spoken before on the fact that the auto industry is not really in favor of freezing CAFE standards at the 2020 level. Uh, the same thing is true on the, on the uh, electric vehicle tax credit. And what, what the bill does basically is to uh, raise the number of uh, vehicles sold by a manufacturer that are still eligible for the tax credit. Currently, what what the the rule is that when a manufacturer reaches the 200,000 vehicle mark, the 200,000 in one vehicle is no longer eligible for the tax credit. What the bill does is to raise that ceiling up to 400,000 and one that uh, may in fact be uh, insufficient given given the support by the utility industry as well as the auto industry um, for electric vehicles at this point. Um, we're going to see the division come up uh, on electric vehicles not between uh, Republicans and Democrats, but between util- utility along with the auto industry fighting um, the oil and gas industry and what we're seeing I think I mean the the trend that is coming up in all of this that I think actually is probably a fairly positive one is that there are there's a reorganization of of alliance of the alliance of interests. I mean, for example, oil and gas industry as opposed to electric vehicle, but certainly not the auto industry. And you know, in, in days gone by, these industries basically had walked in lockstep with each other. And I and I, the same thing that we're seeing with um, senators and congressmen, um, Republicans now admitting to the the veracity of climate science. Um, what we're seeing is this kind of reorganization of interests, And it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens when all the dust settles. But I think that this is something that actually does bode well. I mean, this is, this is kind of the proof of the, um, the long-said saying of all politics are local. Um, and so what's happening is that we're seeing divisions come out, and not just on the coasts. I mean, for example, Trump uh, a couple of weeks ago had uh, lambasted wind energy. Um, mm-hmm. And which is one of Iowa's big economic movers. Um, not only did he say that uh, that they were basically toys, windmills were toys, but that the noise from them caused cancer uh, in people, which obviously right. is a fairly absurd statement. But yeah. what it did was it brought out um, senators like Grassley, who are I mean who are um, conservative otherwise, and also in charge of things like the Judiciary Committee on the Senate side. Coming up and saying, you know, this is this is wrong, uh, Trump, and this is never going to happen. He used some fairly um, specific legislation that uh, that alluded to um, the president's uh, mental faculties, but
0: mm-hmm. I'll,
1: I'll leave I'll leave that to the senator. <laughs> um,
0: well, now, you there's also the whole. Uh, you know, when we talk about EVs, we've got to consider that there's this global footprint, and and uh, and the U.S.'s position with other trade centers. There, there's some issues there, right?
1: Oh, that, that's right. And and I think that one of the things that um, that most politicians, I think, will will recognize, um, is that if the United States doesn't do this, not only I mean, not only in terms of just technology leadership, but if electric vehicles are not supported in this country, then the future sales of by US auto companies in Europe, for example, are going to go down. Um, mm-hmm. And either that or they're going to have to build to the higher standard. In a sense, what you're suggesting here is the same thing that goes on at the state level that as long as California and 13 other uh, states in the District of Columbia have a more strident mission rule the auto industry is, is unlikely to build two different automobiles so mm-hmm. um but the same thing will happen in the electric vehicles um only in this case what happens is you get uh international markets being cut off now whether or not the auto companies would be, build two different sets of automobiles is a question but my guess is that they wouldn't and it's one of the reasons that they're pushing back um on the White House uh, over the freezing of efficiency standards and the electric vehicles, because they understand that whether the United States does it or not, there are others in the world that are going to create a standard that they're going to be forced to build to. And it would be better um, if they had the support while they were doing the designs and and new model years and stuff here in the United States.
0: Mm -hmm. And don't we have some trade issues with China that uh, sort of tie in you know, cer- certainly to uh, you know the the conflicts that we have with China right now in terms of trade.
1: Uh, we, we do, and and um, I think that it's again in the vehicle sense. I mean, we already have the problems of um, you know tariffs on <coughs> excuse me Chinese uh, technology coming in on PVs on photovoltaics, um, and the the impact of the steel and aluminum tariffs. Mm-hmm. But what's happening also is that. When Trump doesn't, when the administration doesn't pay attention to um, future markets and future demands like in electric vehicles, then what happens is that foreign supply chains are going to take over. And what's happening in this country, or to this country actually, is that most of the uh, exotic metals for lithium-ion batteries and, and what have you um, are the materials are in China. And the, and what uh, industrialists in this country are worried about. Is that they don't have the support they think that's necessary to either um, improve the, the the technology or to innovate technology that uses less of these metals, um, or of being able to create a supply chain that doesn't get broken at the whim of the White House, and mm-hmm. this is going to impact not just automobiles but solar um, and wind and any any energy source that requires storage, um, yeah. and so that it's. You know, Trump talks about in U.S. independence um, in energy, and I mean, other other presidents have said so, and, and mm-hmm. certainly other members of Congress. But this is a case where independence is not going to happen if we're dependent upon um, foreign resources for the basic elements that are needed to create and to operate the technologies.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, storage is is growing so fast as a major part of the energy transition well that that's
1: right and and, yeah. and of course it's the it's it's solar and winds and other uh, technologies that are in inter- otherwise intermittent it's their answer to the problem that um you know the wind doesn't always blow and the sun mm-hmm. doesn't shine at night sort of thing um, right and it's i mean storage is is the next is the next market frontier that has to be um conquered
0: mm-hmm All right, well, let's bring it back around to the Hill, which is where we started, and there were some appointments that uh, happened of note.
1: There were. Um, The first one is uh, the Secretary of Interior um, has now been named, the Acting Secretary, David Bernhardt, is now the Secretary of the Interior. Mm -hmm. Um, Bernhardt has some of the problems that Zinke had, and also the ones that Pruitt suffered from as well. He comes from the uh, fossil fuel industry, and there are ethics charges that have been leveled against him that are being investigated now uh, about his being too friendly to clients um, of days gone by. Uh, The other thing that's happening is that there are a lot of regulations that um, Zinke had approved that are still being either litigated in the courts or are in draft stages. Um, that he has to clear up. Uh, one of them is, for example, the value that's placed on coal extracted from uh, interior lands. Um, and generally what happens is that a, a company comes in and they pay for the extraction. They're allowed to be on federal lands. And in Cole's case, it's by the tongue. Um, well, those, those fees are um, then turned back into the, to the Department of Interior for operational things like On national parks and what have you. And what Interior has done is that they've valued the coal being taken off out of federal lands um, at the price paid by um, a parent coal company selling to its subsidiary, which, as you may imagine, is very, very low. Um, And now what's happening is the courts are saying that that's just not right um, and that it should be valued at the higher level, at the higher market value. Um, And this is... uh, it's a problem in its own right, but it's also the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of things that Zinke had done that Bernhardt never really responded to during his nomination hearings um, that have to be attended to. Um, whether it's the, the water of the United States rule or the, the coal valuation extraction, um, it's gonna impact the land that um, has been taken out of uh, the control of the national landmark lands um, that have been opened up to basically to a free for all for industry. And in the midst of all of this, um, interior is going through a massive reorganization. And it's, uh, interior is gonna have a lot of problems, some of which is generated from prior um, executives and some of which is gonna be driven by Bernhard himself. Whatever Bernhard comes up with, I think, is also gonna become an absolute target for, for, for court suits um, mm-hmm. by the environmental community and, and in some cases by industry itself. The other appointment, which hasn't been made yet, but which is and should be worrisome, um, is the appointment of uh, Rosen, to, who is currently the deputy secretary for transportation, um, to become the deputy attorney general responsible for the enforcement um, of U.S. rules governing uh, environmental protection, including um, the rules of extraction of, from fossil fuel sources and what have you. Now, Rosen comes out of transportation and he's a, he is being referred to as um, the author of the, the CAFE standard freeze of 2020. Um, he is also on record as having opposed EPA's endangerment finding. And what happens here is something that's already actually being seen in the sense that um, the Trump administration now has the lowest record Ever um, in the prosecution of uh, potential violations to, in, to environmental rules, okay, whether it's whether it's on federal land or off federal land, um, and again, what happens is that these are considerable sums of money have been brought back into the government's pool of operating funds because of successful litigation. The, the fines in these cases just go they go back into the uh, either into the general treasury or back into an agency's. And when, when, when the Department of Justice doesn't feel that they want to prosecute, what happens is that lost revenues occur, number one. And number two, it sets an example of a permissive behavior that, that isn't really legal. Um, and so what happens is you really get this kind of um, increased chaos um, in the situation of what rules are enforced, what rules are real, what, what rules aren't. Um, you get into delay tactics for all these years. Um and and this position, the, the Deputy Attorney General uh position in this case, um, allows for a lot of discretion in, in, in prosecution. Um and so it may be a case where this is one nominee that's not going to make you through. I I I've spoken with both Republicans and Democrats on the Hill um, who've expressed real doubts about putting somebody like this into that position.
0: Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I'll be fascinated to see how that plays out. Um, all right. Well, I want to stop and come around and look at a, um, a new report that came out recently. It's more on the global landscape. So we can go, you know, bust out to that a little bit. Um, the international renewable energy agency also called IRENA released a, a report called the global energy transition 2019. And, uh, Basically, the central theme of the report is that the world can transition to more energy supplied by electricity and thus more electricity supplied by renewables to meet emissions goals for 2050. And the report says that uh, the accelerated deployment of renewables combined with what they call deep electrification and increased energy efficiency can achieve over 90% of the energy-related CO2 emissions reductions needed by 2050 to reach the uh, below 2 degrees Celsius goal of the Paris Agreement. And that's a pretty big claim, I think, considering we're hearing more and more about the sectors that have come together, together to achieve those kinds of reductions. But the report says that under this uh, 2050 roadmap, 86% of electric generation would be renewable by 2050 and 60% of that would come from solar and wind. And we have to acknowledge that that isn't gonna happen without that uh, storage uh, piece that we were talking about earlier. Um, The share of electricity and final energy would increase from 20%, which is at today to almost 50% by 2050. And there are, according to the report, specific policies that can support that transition. Um, Those policies are very common in the energy transition landscape today. So there's really nothing that jumps out as like new and exciting from the report in that respect. But I'll just run through a couple of those policies um, and the recommendations. So for example, they're looking for policies that promote investment in energy efficiency, renewable energy and infrastructure, uh, of course back to the EV and storage and smart meters. They want policies that encourage the cooperation of public and private sectors like corporate clean energy procurement, which is a huge part uh, of the energy transition already today, a regulatory environment that enables smart energy systems through what other digitalization, think AI and IoT and blockchain, they want policies that encourage circular economy thinking, which is something we touched on a couple of podcasts ago, reuse, recycling, reducing, and policies that support action from cities and, and sub-national regions. We we see a lot of this policy activity already underway in developing nations, uh, and the, the U.S. movement in this respect has been really strong over the last 10 years, um, but you know, from the US perspective, what the Green New Deal was really good at was raising in the public awareness the less talked about part of this transformation, the socioeconomic and environmental justice elements, which are, are hugely important. There are two basic issues here. One, climate change affects different regions by varying degrees, and two, the energy transition itself will affect different regions by varying degrees. So Some regions are paying the price for climate change and will be paying in the future at higher rates than others, and policies have to compensate for that. And the job losses versus the job gains from the energy transition becomes a vital socioeconomic factor. Some regions that are heavy on fossil fuels will feel the change much harder than other regions. I mean, we can see that even in the U.S., and policies that support new job training and cross-purposing have to be prioritized one of the central issues I take with the Arena report and with the Green New Deal is that while they address these ideas, they present them in isolation. The discussion needs always to be looking at this global perspective, uh, because it's a global problem. Balancing the socioeconomic factors across borders is the only way to effectively address and balance the problems and outcomes. And the IRENA report outlines this map to 2050 without speaking to the global cooperative agenda. Is it possible? Who is responsible for the oversight? And how is it possible? We've seen some action in the transition from coal jobs to solar jobs in the US, but under the IRENA report map, the energy transition would hit major fossil fuel centers really hard, and that would become a priority. The report doesn't identify those centers or people at risk right now, And what could be done with them? I think that's a, it's a whole, you know, you look at the report all together, you read it and you just left with a little bit of an empty feeling, I think is, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, But in terms of the Paris Agreement, it's a coming together of countries, but then those countries largely address their issues in singularity. Certainly the U.S. is trying to do that and, and how how do we know how everyone's doing? Is there progress in transparency? Um, we're not just needing to measure emissions, but measuring job gains and losses and climate change damages and policies that consider those factors. Um, the good news is that the Paris Agreement includes some reporting functionality and those submissions are available for public consumption you can go to Google and, and type in UNFCCC transparency and reporting and find those submissions. Uh, you can find submissions from China and India, but don't expect to find a US submission well. there. Uh uh-uh. <laughs> Don't believe the Republican grumbling in the US about inaction from China and India. They're actually well. trying and you can go into those reports and see those efforts.
1: Well, so. and, uh, you know, a perfect example of what you're raising uh-huh. Um, is, is in fact the UN's uh, conference in Poland um, uh, yep. at the end of uh, last year where um, you know, people were questioning why would you have this conference in, in the middle of what is in fact Poland's whole country? Belt, right? <laughs> yep um, and, and the issue of I mean, of why um, Poland, for example, I mean, the, the, the leaders of Poland were standing up and saying, you know we hear what you're saying about climate change, but this happens to be the source of most of Um, our economy and we're not going to we're not going to walk away from it anytime soon Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. we're also getting i mean there are now reports coming up as well that um this is even figuring into the to the immigration um problem or problem to the immigration numbers um from central america into the united states that trump keeps complaining about um that they're attributing some of this obviously to to the social and and political unrest in these countries, but also to the fact that the farmers in these countries are already experiencing uh, the, the problems associated with climate change, and, mm-hmm. and they're no longer quite able to make a living off the land. Um, and so, what it's understandable that that what you're saying is is absolutely correct. That it, it mm-hmm. just spreads the problem spreads out through most um, levels in in society, and um, they're not being addressed the way they should be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one area that I've noted uh, where there is a pretty significant global footprint on climate action uh, is the financial sector. And I saw last week that Luxembourg stepped up to support what's called the International Network of Financial Centers for Sustainability. And they pledged a half million dollar investment designed to help communication between major financial centers, of which Luxembourg is one of the leaders, Uh, That network has 22 financial center members and the U.S. Alliance for Sustainable Finance, which has come together as a sector, it was launched by Bloomberg, joined uh, at its inception in December last year there were 15 founding members of the us alliance that you know we can consider a financial center and among them are jc jp morgan chase wells fargo and goldman sachs and we talked about them on the last podcast and mm-hmm. their track records on sustainable finance so you know it's like yeah we can pin them one way but they are actually trying on another so it's it's always the balance of you know what's good and what's the bad but the International Network released a report last month about the contribution of financial centers to sustainable development. You know, they were looking at what what kind of progress they've actually made. And something that, that came out that sort of brings us back around to the ARENA policy recommendations from their report was that the network is seeing new forms of public-private pri- partnership. And, and that is continually being pegged these days as... It, the best way that we're going to make progress, financially speaking. Uh, and in that respect, nearly two thirds of financial center initiatives on sustainable finance are, are between public and private sectors. And that, that shows a tangible link between policy and practice that you know, we can pinpoint as, as going forward some way. But people can read, the, read that whole report at it's fc4s.org. That's four as in the number four. And it's called the 2019 State of Play. Oh. So, uh, you know, that's a uh, sort of a quick look at that report and other things that are happening in terms of the global perspective. And and I don't have anything else to add in that respect. But I do want to uh, stop and do one of my favorite parts of the show, which is talk about what's on Joel's desk oh. <laughs> and what's coming up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Part of what's on my desk this year or last year's tax forms that I haven't mailed in yet. But, no. <laughs> uh, no uh, but beyond that, the, the two things that I'm actually looking at um, are, first is that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce um, has actually launched a new campaign um, in response, um, I don't want to say absolutely in, in um, opposition, but in response to the, cre- the Green uh, New Deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the global, it's called the Global Energy Institute, um, and what they're doing is they're, uh, they've admitted, I mean, which right up front, they've admitted that climate change is real, um, mm-hmm. that, that human action has a lot to do with it, um, that it's a problem that shouldn't uh, be put off any longer, and that we'll recommend solutions. The, the issue now is how those solutions um, are going to stack up against, say, the Green New Deal. and. And your your comments just a minute ago about uh, getting into the socioeconomic situation Mm -hmm. um, is going to prove very interesting. Because one of the things that uh, is going to happen is that the chamber is going to propose basically um, policies and programs that leverage the power of the private sector. Mm -hmm. Um, And what you have in the more progressive uh, democratic ranks and in the... um, uh, in the socialist uh, democratic organizations like Justice Democrats and um, and Sunrise Movement um, is is really an attitude that says we don't want to have anything to do with um, basically the economy and the private sector that this is that this is really kind of a a top down that you mandate these changes and then they come about um, it, it's their position um, I personally have problems with that but the fact of the matter is that you we're going to see some very conflicting policies going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I want to follow this actually it, uh, over the course of time, because one of the things that I worry about, as good as the admission is and the willingness, obviously, to, to do right. something about it, the question then still becomes, is doing something adequate? And uh, I think that the answer without even doing much research on it is no, it's not. That really what what comes, the only successful way to go forward in this is through a combination um, and through combination of the public and private sector activities, as you just said, that there the are financing mechanisms that the private sector is coming up with that are responsive to the problem. Um, I don't know how how the um, the sunrise movement or others uh, are going to respond to something like that, especially if it's put into law. In some cases, they're going to say, "Well, this you're doing this because this this involves." Doing less while still seeming to do enough, and right, um, right. that's an argument that's going to be really hot on the heels of, of all of these proposals. Um, and in that vein, uh, uh, I'm also following uh, Representative Scott Peters from Florida, who who just issued um, his call for bipartisanship uh, in Congress on climate matters, um, and in fact, has listed fifty pieces of legislation um, in which both Republicans and Democrats um, have signed on as sponsors. Um, and I'm going to be following that up with kind of a, a detailed, or at least an overview of what the 50 legislative proposals are, um, and I'm also going to be actually sending people to look at them for themselves. Because I think what's happening is that we are seeing um, the response to the to the jibes that the Green New Deal people um, had to suffer. when. When they put out the, the resolutions, they said, yeah, well, I mean, what are the particulars? What can actually be done? Well, now people are coming up with per- particulars. And I think that we, on the one side, you have to credit it. And on the other side, you have to kind of um, be mindful of the fact that this is an identity politics world. Um, and is it possible for people to reach outside of their, their identity groups? and actually to sit down and work on some things. So this, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is, is very exciting in one, in one sense um, and very nervous or very nerve wracking in another, because it's, if we don't know how many wishes we're going to get, so to speak. I mean, right. I mean, if we get two bills through the, the Congress in 2020, 2021, that I means it's going to stop. Um, and if if the prospect of a slowdown in, in policymaking is on the horizon, which of the two policies are you going to put uh, your weight behind? If if you only get two wishes, obviously we want a lot more wishes. And right. this is going to, we're going to see in the future how how much the ethos of the Green New Deal um, has actually prompted uh, a stable change in in direction uh, of federal policy.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we we see the Green New Deal was this. Uh, idea for something really aggressive and aggressive doesn't work in politics and so now we see okay well let's let's step along gently and carefully and introduce things slowly but does that slow really address the aggressive we have to sneak things through and that are aggressive in order to help people accept that change it's it's a very delicate process and hopefully we'll get it right.
1: (laughs) Hopefully, Um, you know, it's gonna depend on the reasonableness of of people and um, and to actually test the, when when the Chamber of Commerce says, you know, we understand that that climate change is real, that, you know, human activity um, is a a major cause of it and something should be done. How much of this is um, uh, pandering to the political community and how much of this is actually earnest in the sense that I mean, if they truly believe what it is that they're saying then at some point they need to believe too that our time is limited and this is the time for gentle action is actually over with and so this is i think this is going to be the next the next major fight between between the i don't want to say the forces of good and evil but between mm-hmm. climate defenders and um once before climate deniers
0: mm-hmm. Yep. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that we can wrap it up there. Thank you, Joel, as always, for sharing today.
1: Thank you, Jennifer.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of zero Net 50 You can tweet us questions or comments at hashtag ZeroNet50 and have a great day.